Hello and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and today we're going to hear from Marco Papich, partner and chief strategist at Clocktower Group, which is a research firm that focuses on geopolitics, macroeconomics, and markets. We're going to cover a few relevant topics today, including the role of the U.S. and emerging markets in an increasingly multipolar world, tips for applying a geopolitical strategist toolkit to investing, and even a forecast for the resolution of the debt ceiling. Now, depending on when this goes to air, we'll be able to test Marco's prediction. If my voice seems to change in a few seconds, don't be alarmed. For a handful of upcoming episodes, we were lucky enough to have a couple of CFA Institute's senior leadership guest host the show by recording interviews with some of the bright minds from the recent Asset and Risk Allocation Summit in Washington, including Marco. For this first one, we are pleased to have Andres Vinelli help out in the interviewer chair. Andres is CFA Institute's chief economist, where he leads the Institute's research and advocacy functions. Enjoy the chat with Andres and Marco. Hi, how are you, Marco? Thank you for joining us. Such a pleasure, Andres. Thank you. One of the first questions that I want to ask you is, why would a professional investors care about geopolitics? It's not what we do traditionally. So you're right, Andres. For 40 years, uh, we've been riding the wave. I think the twin pillars, the tailwinds of American hegemony, which ensured that geopolitical risk uh, was confined to relatively uninvestable states. So if you think about the 1990s or the 2000s, the wars were really in places where most investors just didn't have any assets. Um, so that's one. And then the second pillar was really the tailwind of laissez-faire uh, politics, the Reagan and Thatcher revolutions, which established the best practices uh, in terms of policy outcomes uh, that were then packaged in this Washington consensus. And we're here in Washington, D.C., so it's very uh, appropriate. Um, those twin pillars, I think, almost atrophied that part of our brain that used to, I think, be given for most investors. The end of history, the end some, of history. someone called it. Uh, right? so, yes, Francis Fukuyama's, of course, uh, end of history. Mm. Uh, and I mean, he wasn't wrong. You know, he was right, I think, for about 30 years, which is a good track record. Uh, he gets a lot of flack for that. But I think that, that uh, those twin pillars um, ensured that we could professionalize as an industry, that we could become, I would argue, over-quantified as an industry, um, and really leave politics and geopolitics to the sidelines. And so I would argue that today, because those twin tailwinds have flipped, uh, the wind is no longer in the back of our sails, it's in the front. As far as politics and geopolitics are concerned, we have to start taking it seriously. So b before the, the fall of the Iron Curtain, we had two big powers. Um, then we went to the end of history where it seemed like one uh, power um, put some order in, in the world, uh, in world affairs. And why do you think this is different now? What changed? Yeah, so, you know, uh, political scientists, especially those that um, are professionals in international relations theory, they have these three states of the world. You know, uh, it's like the gaseous state, the solid state, and the liquid state in the material world. In, in the world of states, there's a unipolar world, which, as you described, the United States put some order into the world. I would argue that lasted from 1985 or thereabouts to sometimes in the 2010s. And then you had the bipolar world, which was the Cold War. Today, I think we are in a, a different world, a multipolar world. And uh, the behavior of states in each of those states is different and meaningful for investors. Why do I think it's changed? 
it's not because the U.S. lost any absolute power. And this is a very important point. Uh, there's a lot of what I call aircraft carrier accounting going on. Uh, folks trying to use objective data to prove that America is still the most powerful country in the world, which I think is silly, because of course it is. But it doesn't matter. In order to have a U.S.-centric global order, the U.S. doesn't just need to be head and shoulders above the rest. It needs to be head, shoulders, torso, and hips above the rest of the world, because that is where preponderance of power, which is a term political scientists use, that's where you have such a preponderance of power that you can compel the rest of the world to do what you want. You want to invade Iraq, you know, according to international law illegally, then you do it. You do not care what the UN says. Um, so that was the world that I think we've left. And I can't necessarily prove that through data, but I can prove it through the behavior of other countries in the world and not the Chinas or the Russias or the Irans. Obviously they will counter the American system, but more like France. Emmanuel Macron, president of France, an ally of the United States of America, went to Beijing. Mm -hmm. 40 CEOs of companies of France went with him. So other countries are pursuing interests that are not necessarily aligned with what the U.S. would want it to be, and that is evidence of this world. How does that new uh, world, multipolar, I take it, world impact different, the, the investment profile of different regions or, or sectors in the economy? So that's... Um, well, political scientists, if they were to dabble in our field, would say, well, there will be more wars. Okay. You know, fundamentally, a multipolar world is a discordant. That sounds terrible, but I think I heard you say that war is good. Well, let's, un let's unpack that. Is that right? Let okay. That is clear. <laughs> okay. But before you got me canceled, let me, let me unpack that one. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, um. Uh, Frequency of conflict rises in a multipolar world. Uh, now, every conflict is terrible because humans will suffer, uh, but not all wars are equally relevant from a geopolitical or a macro perspective. And we saw, for example, last year um, with the Ukrainian conflict, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, um, commodity prices rise across the board, but then the risk premium dissipates very quickly because the war actually did not impact supply of almost any critical commodity, which was a surprise. I mean, wheat is produced in Ukraine. Even wheat ended up getting to the market. So the frequency of conflict is not necessarily what matters about multipolarity. Uh, I would say that's the least relevant part of this. If you want to be long defense stocks, I mean, there's your thesis, but that's not interesting to me. What's interesting to me, Andres, is that in a multipolar world, something interesting happens. First of all, there's a paradox in which countries that are enemies are compelled to trade with one another in a multipolar world because their own allies cannot be put into order. In other words, you have China, you have the United States, clearly the two countries that are more powerful than others, but they cannot compel their own allies to keep the line, to keep containment. And so you have these very strange outcomes that we haven't seen since the 19th century, where the rhetoric and the uh, assertiveness of powers is rising. They're becoming very antagonistic, but they continue to trade with one another. And that is actually quite positive for investors because some of the worst outcomes in terms of inflationary outcomes are going to be kept in check with some level of globalization. And this is why I always tell, especially long-term investors, don't think of globalization as a one or a zero. It's a continuum. It's like a zero to a 10. We're not going to be a 10 anymore or a nine or an eight, but we're going to be somewhere in a six or a seven. 
And that's not that bad. So inflation is kept in check by persistent globalization, which will remain at higher levels than the 1970s. The second outcome is that countries suddenly become aware of national security. They begin to plan for it. National Security Advisor of the United States, Jack Sullivan, just delivered a very interesting speech on this topic. We're no longer in laissez-faire capitalism. But from productivity outcomes, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We have a body of work, a body of evidence from Robert Gordon in his epic Rise and Fall of American Growth to uh, data showing productivity gains have been very paltry of the recent technological innovation. What we know is that when the state gets back into the business of innovation, funding it through significant R&D efforts, we will start to make discoveries in technology that will be meaningful. And so I think that productivity and therefore growth outcomes will surprise to the upside in this decade, whereas inflation may surprise to the upside, but not as much as some of the, uh, you know, worst case outcomes suggest. It's very interesting. I, I've uh, read your book, Geopolitical Alpha, um, before the, the war in Ukraine, and it's very interesting how the framework that you posit there really applied you know, before things happened. Um, so uh, in this world where there's uh, several powers um, that are enticing to, say, emerging markets, how do you think emerging markets uh, would, will position themselves in order to maximize uh, their, their goals? You know, it's very interesting. If you look at things like U.S. financial aid, <clears throat> to uh, the non-aligned world, it was the highest when? Well, it was the highest in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when there is the other, when you're trying to fight someone. Uh, so what I would argue is that kind of the worst case outcome, the worst outcome for an emerging market economy from a geopolitical perspective, but also macroeconomic, is that there's only one bully because then you just have to do what they say. <laughs> and they don't care about you. It's my way or the highway. You either adopt Washington consensus package of best practices, or you don't get the IMF deal. Right. It's that simple. But when there's competition, you know, when mom and dad are fighting or divorced, you get benefits. And that's what I see happening right now. A lot of emerging market economies have astutely observed that the correct way to behave is to be promiscuous geopolitically. So not to put a wedding ring on your finger in this world. What you want is you want to play the field. You want to date as much as you can. And so here in the U.S., we have this, um, uh, you know, a lot of very critical view of foreign policies of India in, re in regards to, you know, importing Russian oil, Saudi Arabia in regards to talking to China, Brazil, of course, President Lula went to uh, Beijing. But these countries are playing the multipolar world correctly. And I think that you will see, Andres, considerable gains uh, from that behavior. You will see FDI surge from both China and the U.S. We're already seeing that in places like Indonesia, in a place like Vietnam. These countries are playing both sides and they're doing it correctly. And as an investor, I want to have a position in emerging markets, not just because of this. There's other reasons I would be bullish, commodities, dollar. Um, but also on top of that, I want to ensure that I invest in those emerging market economies that have correctly ascertained that it is indeed a multipolar world. And therefore, you don't want to put a wedding ring on either side. It's very interesting. Uh, former Treasury uh, Secretary Larry Summers uh, tweeted a few days ago saying, uh, 
from the U.S. we we get uh, lectures. You know, officers from third world countries uh, said when we go to say China, we get an airport or finance for for an airport. Do you think the U.S. is internalizing yeah. this framework? Oh, absolutely. And there's actually uh, campaigns right now in the United States. There are uh, efforts within the G7 to counter, for example, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, Jake Sullivan, again, in a recent speech, mentioned them. I would read that speech in full. Uh, so the National Security Advisor of the United States of America has a view on private investment in emerging markets. <laughs> That's all you need to know. Okay. You know, so, so um, yes, we are going to start seeing the U.S. commit real effort to change that narrative that the U.S. only provides a lecture. And so I think you will see that. The irony, by the way, the irony uh, is that in many ways, China has actually stopped lending to the rest of the world. I mean, if you actually look at Chinese overseas lending and FDI as, uh, as, uh, that's associated with the Belt and Road Initiative, it's collapsed. The Chinese economy is not doing great. Uh, China has actually uh, withdrawn much of its effort to finance infrastructure projects around the world. Uh, American policymakers apparently are not aware of this. They have not read my research and seen the chart. But hey, God bless them. Let them continue to surge FDI into emerging markets. It's a good for emerging markets themselves. So, so for a rank and file uh, investor, um, how can this person get smarter on considering geopolitics in their framework for asset allocation, other than reading your book? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, other than reading my book, I would say I would say that we as investors, as professionals in the investment field, have to have a framework for thinking about politics. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, look, I don't I don't know of any other framework other than what I've worked with. So I'm obviously biased methodologically, but I really truly believe that the way to approach questions of politics and geopolitics is to focus on the material constraints that prevent policymakers from doing. Material constraints, could you elaborate? Yeah, so material constraints are things that have nothing to do with the brain of the politician in question. What do I mean by that? I mean, we all have desires and dreams and preferences, and so do policymakers. Does President Putin want to invade Ukraine? Um, do Chinese policymakers want to reunify militarily with their wayward province of Taiwan? These are questions that a lot of policymakers, uh, a lot of investors begin their assessment of geopolitics with what does the politician want? And I, ar I argue that that is the incorrect way to do that. We are not skilled as an epistemic community. We in finance, we do not have the resources, the information, the data, nor the know-how to investigate what's inside a politician's mind. So where we should begin is by thinking what world do they inhabit and what are the material constraints, economic, financial, military, demographic? What is the world that they inhabit? And so what is the political path of least resistance that they will be forced to follow, given those constraints? And so that's something that we are actually skilled at doing, observing the real world, observing data, and creating scenarios. Yeah, we know how to do that. We, whether you're a bottom-up analyst in the sector or whether you're a top-down macro investor, you know how to look at data and create scenario analysis. So if you, if you want to assess whether Vladimir Putin will invade Ukraine, it's not about does he want to invade Ukraine. You have to think about, well, how complex is it to invade a country the size of Ukraine with a population the size of Ukraine? How many troops do you have available? What will be the economic consequences of Western sanctions? Where does this go if, you know, 
these things happen. And then once the invasion happens, what are the consequences? Can we embargo, can we truly embargo as the West Russian oil? Or will Russian oil have to go to other markets? And therefore, what is the appropriate stance as an investor on energy? As an example, I mean, I'm leading the question, obviously, we know the answer. The answer is we should have shorted oil, not gone long because of the war. Uh, but my point about all of this is that the starting point is never what's inside the brain of a politician. It is the world they inhabit. It's describing those constraints. Uh, and to do that, we need to get a little bit innovative about data. So polling matters. Uh, and I don't mean polling in elections. I mean polling in do the, does the Greek voter want to leave the euro area, as an example? You know, that's probably more important than what the prime minister of Greece at any single time thinks about the euro. Okay. Um, what is the uh, commitment of the Ukrainian people to the fight against Russia? These are things that can actually yeah. unique through interesting data, through inter interesting polling. We also have to be a little bit better in understanding how political systems work. Uh, so understanding the legislative system, the bicameral, they, these things matter, especially when you have something like the debt ceiling coming up. Yeah. What are the tools and procedures that policymakers can use to overcome certain legal impediments? So what are the constraints that you speak of, um, how would they play out, say, on the this debt ceiling? That is that is a very interesting, very political issue. And to understand the constraints of different policymakers in this sort of game theoretical moment, we have to understand that there are legislators, representatives, who are elected in districts. They don't really have a constraint that is the view of the uh, voters in the United States of America. They really focus on the districts. So you have about 40, 45 members of the Freedom Caucus, and they are elected in extremely purist districts. In other words, a chocolate Labrador would get elected in this district over a Democrat. So for them, the constraint is not what do American people want, and clearly American people don't want the fault. For them, it's one of the voters in my district which is 80%, 90% Republican, what do they want? And more importantly, what do people who show up at a primary election vote? Now, those tend to be zealots, activists, very mm -hmm. political people. About Nationally, about 12 to 16% of Americans vote in non-presidential year primaries. So you're talking like the most distilled, purest voters that you can get. Yes. So I think these members of Congress will not you know, compromise. Um, and then you have Joe Biden, you have Speaker McCarthy, you have senators. They look at this issue from a more macro perspective. They care about this mythical median voter. And I can tell you what the median voter wants. On What's that? Well, I can look at the polling, right? Mm -hmm. So in 2011, when Barack Obama was pushed to do fiscal consolidation uh, by the Tea Party and he acquiesced to their demands, the median voter wanted austerity. 70% uh, or more of Americans in 2010 and 11 and 12 wanted, or they, they perceived the fiscal cliff, the fiscal fiscal situation to be a threat to the U.S. And and that's one of the reasons why the recovery took longer oh, absolutely. this time around. I would say there's only two reasons we had secular stagnation. It's not, it's not, it's not magical. Private sector was deleveraging and public sector did not come to compensate it. Why? Because of austerity fetish. But austerity fetish of policymakers didn't fall from the sky. It was really a grassroots demand. 
you know, this, uh, this concept of the Schwabian housewife in Germany that we read about so much in 2010. Angela Merkel was concerned about her own voters and Germans and American policymakers and not just the Tea Party, but Barack Obama. So the constraint in 2011 is different than today. And so, ironically, I fear that today is worse. The constraint to President Obama in 2011 was that the median voter kind of agreed with the Tea Party. And therefore, therefore, the outcome was simple. Barack Obama negotiated, and he did accept the sequester. Today, the constraint is that I don't think President Biden cares about what Republicans want, because he's going to go back and say, hey, I don't have any constraints. 40% of Americans care about budgets, not 70. So I'm not going to negotiate with you. I'm going to let you, 40 members of the House, I, I'm going to let you like burn down the House, and then I'm going to blame you for it, and then I'm going to win in 2020. Call the bluff. Call the Absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Let's see the default. So I, I worry that in this game of chicken, the president will not swerve. In 2011, they did. And, and again, it has nothing to do with preferences. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure President Biden doesn't want the United States to default. Uh, but from a political logic, he is completely in the right. Um, and again, I don't mean normatively or morally. I just mean from a poker game, from a game theoretical perspective, I don't think he should swerve. If he doesn't, the voters will blame the side that pursued a policy that nobody in America really cares about. So what caused here? What happened? What's the difference? The difference is that the median voter of the United States changed their preferences uh, from wanting fiscal consolidation in, in the last cycle, which is why, as you say, we had secular stagnation, jobless recovery, and so on, to today, where the experience of the COVID recovery recession is such that like, well, when we have a recession, we can just stimulate. And I don't think there's been any, you know, like that's the significant shift. Uh, and that means that for President Biden, there are no constraints to being very aggressive. So how does this get resolved? I think it will require market reaction, you know, um, some sort of a negative market reaction. And then I think uh, about 10 to 30 Republicans in the House who are elected in competitive districts. It's not many, it's about 10 to 30. I think they will have to abandon the Republican Party's position and raise the debt ceiling, maybe even without the speaker. Which sector should we invest on, given that backdrop? To put it simply, if, you know, we have 20 minutes to talk about this, so here's a, your, your map, your roadmap should be what worked from 2001 to 2006. That is the world we're in. Now, you might say, well, Marco, we're in a profoundly different world than that. I mean, China joined the WTO and China industrialized. And so that drove the commodity super cycle. And what I would say is like, yes, but we are literally in the same world. Why? China went from the periphery of the supply chain to the middle. What did well? Excavators, copper, iron, steel energy. Okay, cool. Now China's going from the center, not to the periphery, but to the side. From an investor's perspective, it's the same process. You still need excavators, copper, steel, and energy because well, there won't be any single country that will replace China. What is happening around the world is that every country is trying to up their CapEx game a little bit. And so a lot of investors are very skeptical. And they say, "Without Marco, if you don't give me the next China, I will not be bullish commodities. So give me India. Give me Brazil. Give me somebody else. And I say, like, well, I can't. <laughs> there isn't next China. But what I can say, tell you is that 
countries from Spain to America to Brazil to Netherlands to Japan will do a little bit. And when you put all that together, it's even more than what China did. Plus, China itself will have to do investment-led spending because their consumer is basically deleveraging. And so what you have is a CapEx-driven cycle, even though no single country replaces China as that key cog of the supply chain. So the outcomes are going to be the same. So to, to put it simply, what worked from 2001 to 2006 should probably work this time around as well. And that means we're in a dollar bear market. That means that uh, emerging markets are going to do good, well, and I think that uh, commodities are going to do okay too. Well, fantastic. This is a lot to consider, but thank you so much for uh, being here with us. I thank you so much. It's a real, it's a real uh, pleasure. You've been listening to Andres Vanelli in conversation with geopolitical strategist Marco Papage. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.